Hello, this is Dr. Shiva. Welcome to our podcast, Get Educated or Be Enslaved. Episode 651, air date June 18th, 2020. Live today on the Genius of Homeschooling. And we're here out of Cambridge or, uh, or Massachusetts. And um, I have two guests who are going to join us, two amazing guests. Um, and to those of you on Facebook, uh, YouTube, and Periscope and Twitter, welcome. But today's talk is really going to be about the homeschooling discourse. And for me, I have a, some personal experience with this because it was homeschooling that really helped me be successful, particularly in math and science and chemistry, which I'll talk about. And uh, before I start that, everyone knows that we have a very important campaign for United States Senate that's taking place here in Massachusetts. I'm the only guy who's not a lawyer running. There's three other lawyers, um, two on the Democrat side, one flunky guy on the Republican side that the GOP establishment threw in who barely can talk. He probably should have had homeschooling. But, um, and then the other two, one is a guy called Malarkey, um, who's been in there for 50 years. And obviously there's this fool called Kennedy who can uh, barely talk. And the only thing he has is his name. And he went to a private school. Again, he probably should have done some homeschooling too, but probably everyone at home probably didn't know a lot or were drugged up or on some type of addiction. So he couldn't get any help there. So it's too bad. But uh, I was fortunate to have uh, amazing parents, great mentors. I went to public school, but most of the stuff I learned was for my father. If it wasn't for him, I don't think I would have uh, learned as much as I did any anyway. So, uh, and I'll talk about that. But just to update everyone, for those of you who are very interested in our uh, US Senate campaign, I always review what's been going on with our Senate campaign. So let me go up here. As most of you know, um, I'm running for US Senate. If you go to the website, shiva4senate.com, S-H-I-V-A numeral for senate.com. And that uh, site is you know packed, action packed with tons of information, but you can go here. Um, uh, you can, you can uh, learn how you can uh, vote for Shiva, which is right now the primary election is coming up on September 1st. We have to win the Republican primary. And so any one of you is Republican can vote in it. Any one of you who is no party or what's called unenrolled, which means you don't belong to a party, you can vote in it. And any one of you who's a Democrat, switch over to known party unenrolled and you can uh, pledge. But right now, go to the site and pledge to vote for us. And this is for people within Massachusetts. Those of you who know people outside of Massachusetts, whether you're out in the United States outside or outside in the world, let all of your friends know that the movement for truth, freedom, and health has been unleashed in Massachusetts. Our Senate campaign is the tip of that spear that represents that. Get everyone you know to get ready to vote on September 1 in the primary. Again, they have to be a Republican or designated as no party or unenrolled. So that's one of the most important things. The other people, other of you know that the central piece of our campaign is truth, freedom, and health. Freedom is a necessary ingredient to get to truth. Freedom means that we can discourse, we can converse, we can um, openly discuss ideas. And in the framework of the scientific method, we can find out what withstands the test and that leads to truth. And from truth, we can figure out the real problems and the real solutions for the health of our body, our society, our infrastructure. And from that health, we get the strength to fight for freedom. So that's a systems approach to looking at the world. So those of you who support the campaign, um, I, as you know, I've put out a really cool book out there where every one of you can learn a systems approach to looking at the world, to looking at your life, to understanding problems. And you can also look at what is change, what is revolution in that context. It's a very short book, but it's action packed, which means it's potent 
with tons of uh, knowledge that you can apply to various aspects of your life. One aspect is to your own body. And as, as an adjunct to that, I've created a laboratory called Your Body, Your System, which is a piece of software that you can use to understand those principles of um, the uh, principles in System and Revolution. And so anyone in the United States can donate to our campaign to take advantage of it. And by the way, some of you who are outside of the United States, you can literally go to yourbodyyoursystem.com where you can get access to the software. And one of the things you wanna understand for both people is that this software really lets you understand the forces of motion, transport, the forces of conversion, conversion and storage within your own system, your own body. And it lets you actually mark that, which is red circle. Then you can take a different set of questions and figure out how you're deviated, which means you're disturbed from that. And then you can then figure out the inputs to any system, how you can bring yourself back to you. So that's really systems theory in a, in a simple nutshell, which is you decide what your goal is in life, where you want to go for our goal is truth, freedom, and health. What are the things uh, assess where you actually are and then figure out how, what are the inputs you need to do into the system to bring you back to where you want to go. In the case of the body, the, the goal is your own personal homeostasis, which varies for us politically, it's truth, freedom, and health. And, and that's, you know, the input that we're putting into the system is our Senate campaign. We've galvanized people all over, uh, for, frankly, all over the country and all over the world. People are telling all their friends in Massachusetts and obviously right here in Massachusetts. So, um, anyway, today we have people from, uh, Hawaii. We see people coming in from Canada, uh, et cetera. But the, so I have two guests today, Gabriella and Richard, and, uh, both homeschool their, uh, kids. And we're going to talk about the genius of homeschooling. And I'll give a, a very brief personal background. Um, Richard uh, will give a personal background of why he decided to homeschool his daughter, same with Gabriella. And then we're going to have a conversation really looking at this professor at Harvard and why Harvard University thinks that they have any say in having any type of uh, summit, which they plan to build policy to basically tell the rest of the world that they know better that parents are dangerous and they should be homeschooled. So let me bring our guests on. I have uh, Richard is on the phone. Hi, Gabriella. How are Hi. you? I'm good. How are you? Good. Are, Richard, are you there? Uh, yes. Hi, Richard. How are you? Richard, you're in Cambridge, Massachusetts, right? Uh, yes. And Gabri Gabriella, you're in Westfield, Massachusetts. That's right. Okay. So let me, you know, for both of you, you know, my, uh, my, you know, my background <laughs> Is interesting because my I came from an environment of the Indian caste system where people like us weren't even supposed to go to school. Okay, my grandparents um, did barely any schooling. My grandmother, who was a village healer, my father grew up in war-torn Burma in the 40s, and he didn't see his first book until he was like 12 years old, and he started studying under a mango tree, literally with a, a village teacher. He was a very smart guy, and he ended up becoming one of India's uh, foremost engineers, which is a very interesting story. And that's why he was invited to come to the United States um, to do engineering work. My mother uh, grew up in a broken household where women in those days, for, first of all, weren't supposed to go to school. And somehow she figured out how to pick herself up literally uh, as a nine-year-old when her father sort of ran off and left these nine people homeless, you know, her and her eight other siblings. Um, so I was fortunate because I uh, my parents were very much into education. It's one of the reasons they came to the United States. 
But I can tell you, you know, my parents traversed all the different public school systems from the poorest in Patterson, New Jersey, when we arrived, you know, to the working class neighborhoods in Clifton and Persephone. And then we went to one of the wealthiest school systems, public's all public in Livingston, New Jersey. But I can tell you without any equivocation that my biggest learning that got me into place like MIT that taught me programming and all this was um, the fact that I was, I, go, I went to public school, I, um, which was okay. I was an athlete, but I'd come home at 8 p.m. after um, doing all those sports and stuff. And between 8 p.m. and 2 a.m., uh, my dad and I would do tons and tons of math problems together. It wasn't, you know, my teachers gave me certain framework, but it was that homeschooling that what, what is that? Almost six hours I would do of problems, problems, problems. Um, my dad and I would talk about, you know, he would inspire me how we grew up, you know, the stories about working hard, about service, about being a full human being. Those were the things he homeschooled me. You know, yes, my parents would never not go to public school because there was sort of the curse if you didn't go. But I would have to say like at least 70, 80 percent of my uh, core knowledge came from my interactions with my father. Um, the, and projects that I did on my own, uh, independent of that, at you know Rutgers Medical School, where I created the first email system. So Richard, maybe you can share as I quiet down the dog here how you got into homeschooling. You know, just take your time, and how all of this began for you, and why you decided to homeschool your daughter. Um, well, it started about first grade. Um, we were having some bullying issues. Um, there was a parent-teachers conference, and they were just going over um, what they were going to teach for the year. And they had brought up, they were going to have like a discussion on um, sex education and drug use. And they couldn't tell us any further details. And we just didn't agree with that in first grade. So we figured out how to um, just start homeschooling. And it just went from there. We um, got a tutor to help us out at the beginning and uh, my daughter is old enough now where she takes most of her classes online. And, and Richard, so, so the big transition was the bullying that occurred in school. Was that the only thing or was there anything else? Um, just the curriculum they were talking about, like having a sex education and a drug class in the first grade, which we didn't agree about having being taught to our first grade daughter. When in first grade is how old is somebody that like six years old? Um, I forget what it was. Yeah, it's about six. About six? Wow, they wanted to teach sex education at six to a six-year-old? Yes. Okay, and then what was the drug education class about? Well, they couldn't tell us what it was. They wouldn't give us the details on it. What do, what do you mean? They didn't want to share the curriculum with you? Yeah, the teacher said that she didn't have it yet, so she couldn't share it with us. And we All found right. that very odd, and we didn't agree with it. Oh, and how many days before, weeks before was that before they were going to teach that curriculum? Well, this was like one of the first parent-teachers conference of the year. So it was probably about a month into the first grade. And mm -hmm. we were already having issues. So that was just the final straw. I see. All right, Gabriella, do you want to share with us uh, what happened with you? I can do that. Yeah. So when I was in high school, I actually was homeschooled for two years. And my parents homeschooled my brother because he was getting into trouble and they tried private school and he still wasn't cooperating and getting any learning done. So they 
made him homeschool and they gave me the option to be homeschooled. And when I was in eighth grade, we went to the high school and we toured the high school. And, you know, this was late 80s. And I was in eighth grade chemistry. I took, I shadowed somebody in 11th grade chemistry. They were learning the same thing that I had already learned. They were taking a test. And the only difference was they were supposed to have memorized the periodic table. Well, all of the students had their test on their, on their desk and they were picking it up and cheating because they had the periodic table under their test. And I looked around and I said, I don't wanna be reviewing what I already learned and I don't wanna be in a school with a bunch of cheaters. So I decided to be homeschooled and it was right when Massachusetts was kind of getting started homeschooling. My parents were the, one of the first ones that um, did it that I know of. The, the big state group started about, about then. And so I was homeschooled for two years and I did about three or four years worth of math because I finished the whole textbook. And when I went back to school, they, as a junior, I took calculus and then I didn't have anything as a senior. So that was my first introduction to homeschooling. And I have two boys. One of them actually just graduated this past Saturday being homeschooled. He started when he was in sixth grade. So Gabrielle, let me just stop you. So when you say he graduated, so in the homeschooling model, how does they, how do they graduate? Do they follow a program that graduates them or he went and took the GED exam or something when you say he graduated? I am in charge of his education. His oh. transcript comes from me. Oh, really? Yes. Oh, so you grade him. I do. Well, that's pretty cool. Mm -hmm. All right. Oh, so you actually give him grades that he has to pass on his exams and all that. Yes. I say, I see. Well, that's great. so he graduated high school then. He did. So now, and you can design whatever program you want, right? That's right. Okay, you set the criteria, et cetera. Mm -hmm. I see. So there's a, is there like a paper trail you keep? Okay, he did this and then he did this and he passed this or no? Um, I mean, I keep samples of his work Yeah. in case somebody wants to see it, but he was diagnosed with autism when he was three and through, he, he was in the school system and they had actually spe very good special ed services for him through the end of elementary school. So that's why he was in the school through that time. And when he was going into the middle school, they called me a few weeks before school started and said, we need to change his IEP because the program that he's in doesn't exist in the middle school. And I was already not sure I was going to send him to middle school because middle school is a horrible time, especially for a student in the special ed program. There's a lot of bullying, a lot of just things that as an autistic kid, he, even though he was recovered, he really wasn't socially up to speed yet. So I, I decided to just not send him into sixth grade and homeschool him instead. So that was his first year. 
that year I sent my other child. He was in a pretty good elementary school setting. He went, went into third grade when my older one went into sixth grade. And he was there for three weeks before I pulled him out. And why'd you pull him out? I pulled, I pulled him out because there were weekly spelling tests and he hated spelling. He refused to work with me on studying. He said, this doesn't make any sense. Why are these two things spelled differently? And no, you know, the teacher wasn't explaining that. They sound the same. Why are they spelled differently? It just, and, and he wasn't, and he started bringing home classwork that he hadn't done, that the school wanted me to do with him after school. And I'm looking at this and I'm saying, okay, what is he doing for six hours? Because it's clearly not classwork. <laughs> they couldn't get him to do anything. He comes home at 3.30 and he's in gymnastics three times a week. I have to be there at four till 6.30. I didn't want my relationship with him to be fighting to make him do papers that I didn't believe in. They weren't the right thing for him. He was a very analytical child. Um, his favorite number when he was young was infinity. So he, he loved to think about theory and analyze things. And that is not what happens in public school at all, ever. And really you're taught to listen, learn, and parrot it back. Don't question, don't think about it. And that's the other mm -hmm. piece. Let me, let me ask both of you this one question, okay? Uh, Richard and Gabriella, and, and if others want to come. So to me, um, it seems like education, there are certain parts of education um, that are skills, okay? So for example, uh, you could argue um, learning to tie a shoelace, okay? That's a skill, right? Um, you could look at... Um, um, you know, learning how to uh, cook something is a skill, right? How to start a fire. So there's, it seems like there's a range of skills that are out there that people should be learning, right? I'm talking about uh, a range of skills that are independent. One thing I'm gonna do is someone is there. Um, it looks like there's um, a range of skills that people need, okay? So one of the things that I thought about in this issue with homeschooling and non-homeschooling is how do you, what are the, are there a certain set of vital skills? Like, um, you know, if you were dropped off in a jungle that everyone needs, independent of whether it's homeschooled or not homeschooled, you follow what I'm saying? So um, this is a question for, for me, I think mathematics is a skill. L learning how to manipulate numbers, uh, learning how to, articulate oneself. Um, this is just basically survival skills in my view in the modern world, right? Um, there's probably about five or 10 of them. In my view, if you study mathematics, you should probably all study linear algebra first. It's something that you teach later in like graduate school. Um, there are certain ways that math is taught, but there are certain set of skills. I think, I think if, if everyone, for example, learn linear algebra, you could apply that to everything. You could apply that to big data, you could apply that to vectors. I mean, the whole, bu whole bunch of things. So R Richard, do you understand what I'm saying? I know you 
have your daughter, right? How are you deciding, like, what are the basic skills that she needs to have? And how do you make sure she, and first of all, what do you think are basic skills and what are the, what are the ones you think she needs to have? Like basic skills. And are there any, first of all, do you think there are any? Um, yeah, well, math is her favorite subject. And so she's doing math problems. I wasn't even doing it in high school. So, and she's not even in high school yet. Right. But my question is, what do you think are basic skills, Richard? Like basic uh, skills, because the, the people like this woman who is at Harvard, they're arguing that parents may be neglecting their kids and not giving them these certain things, right? Are there a basic set of skills that everyone should have? Yeah, she, uh, my daughter, she's could live on her own right now. She has enough skills. She knows how to take care of herself. And, and what are those skills, Richard? She knows how to cook for herself. She knows how to solve problems on her own. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, you, I, I, think I think communication is definitely one of them. Solving problems. Um, budgeting. Mm -hmm. A lot of times that's an elective in high school or they just give it one semester or something like that. But budgeting is big and many people don't really learn it. Um, being able to work together in a team. Being able mm -hmm. to talk to people that are not your own age. Like a lot of times the public school, the, the students are able to just talk to each other, but they're not good at talking to people that are adults, for example, um, or even younger than them. They look down on them. So let me ask you, in the homeschooling world, are there certain like checkoff lists of these are the skills that by the time someone hits a certain age, or is, is this anywhere? Do you follow what I'm saying? Is there like, you know, when um, they look at kids growing, right? They said, okay, by around two years old, the kid should be talking, right? I don't know what the ages are, right? I've never had kids at, at, at X years old, the kid should be walking, right? Mm -hmm. In that same vein, are there certain checklists of what's expected in that basic skills model? For example, I, I would assume on the communication side, I would say by the time someone is probably in sixth grade, or let's say by the time they're, forget the grades, but by the time they're probably about 13, 12 or 13, they should be able to write something pretty clear, concise, that has meaning that could, they could communicate either written or oral, like can express an idea reasonably well, um, communicate in a varying levels. Um, they should be able to probably solve pretty much most, you know, add and subtract, right? Um, whether it be in whatever application. Someone just said cooking, self-reliance, math, history, um, critical thinking, problem solving, um, those kinds of things. Because the, the character of what's happening is with AI coming on, artificial intelligence, you find out machines can do a lot of very interesting things, right? The calculator, which we started getting, you know, when I was just starting college, right? Um, you can do a lot. Um, but 
does that mean that the kid is not learning certain brain development, right? This has been just an interesting question I've had. Um, should a kid learn like three languages? Because we know when the brain learns a lot of or more languages than just one, it develops in different ways. The brain during a certain phase is much more plastic, which means can learn a lot more. And um, how much should it be exercised? You know, in a way, have you guys thought about that as homeschooling parents? Well, it certainly should be exercised, but there's another piece of this and that's not age dependent. It's where did the child start? Where are their talents? Where are their deficiencies? And you need to work on those individually for each child. And then what are, what are their talents and what, do they, what are their goals? So I have one son, like I said, that's very analytical. The other one is more artistic. So I'm going to be focusing on how do you write fiction? How do you tell a story? How do you communicate more with the, as, as far as do presentations and possibly acting and things like that with my older one? And the younger one who's analytical, I'm going to be focusing more on science and math and really dig into the details of that. And that's part of the beauty of homeschooling is that for each child, you can help them excel in the things that they want to do and definitely don't have them lag behind on the other things, but continue to work on all the skills. But I don't think you can really put an age to these things. And I think as an overall goal, it's great, but Common Core tries to pace everybody at the same pace and they don't try to get an understanding. They don't look at understanding. They look at what can you remember and what questions can you answer? So. So they, um, they don't, they don't even do that. So mm -hmm. as course, they can't require us to do that. Yeah. So let's talk about this woman at Harvard. Okay. Did you, uh, Richard, uh, Richard lives in Cambridge. There was supposed to be a conference today, June 18th, 19th at Harvard to get rid of basically it was uh, to, I mean, it was put into all these flowery words, you know, problems and uh, policies around homeschooling, but it was fundamentally the woman who was running it. Her real view was that homeschooling is dangerous because you can't trust parents because they're not qualified to really put together curriculums. Um, and she talked about political frameworks, people who could be teaching their kids uh, white supremacy, and all sorts of interesting things that, that were in that, that or the parents could be uh, politically aligned and which, which would force the kids to take certain political alignments, which were not their own. But it was an, in, so that was a, and then suddenly they decided to cancel it uh, about three weeks ago, as I understand, and they put it on COVID. But uh, from what I understand, there was a lot of backlash, even from students at Harvard. Some of them who were going there, they'd been homeschooled. A number of other people hit them pretty hard. Um, so, uh, Richard, what do you think about this woman? And the, the, I mean, she's in your neck of the woods in Cambridge and she wanted to have this whole event to stop people like you from homeschooling. They're just afraid of, um, the state losing control over the kids. 
just comes down to that. Mm -hmm. Gabrielle, what about you? Well, I believe that everything she is blaming us for is what they do in the university. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's an interesting model because um, I would say most of the stuff I learned was on my own, you know, because my parents, you know, uh, in their view, going to because they grew up in an environment where people of that background weren't even allowed to go to school. So for them, going to school was a big thing, right? It was sort of the thing you did that signified that you were moving forward in progress because you were denied that. But I remember most of the stuff I learned was on my own. Um, you went to class, but most of it was on my own or with my particular math and science uh, with my dad. That's where most of my knowledge and skills came from or the skills that I learned with people in the neighborhood, be it, you know, lawn mowing, right? Be it landscaping, be it carpentry, whole range of skills, which were not in that a particularly public school environment. Did learn a lot in things like shop class, you know, where you did things by hand. Um, you learned a ton there. Um, but what I do know is before I came to MIT, for me, I didn't even want to go there. I had already, you know, done so much work in building stuff and frankly was done. And I remember after I came to MIT, it took me many, many years to realize that the entire university education model was basically taking advantage of smart kids who would actually put in their time. Meaning the big universities were essentially finding the kids who had already worked their butt off, let them into their schools, and then they put their brand on them, right? So it's a very interesting model that I've seen develop where basically what they've done is the higher education systems scout for the best people, and then they bring them in and they put their label on them. But most of MIT, I don't, I, I don't think I went to probably 70% of my lectures. Again, it was, you know, you learn on your own, you, d you do it. But I did learn things when I did research projects, you see, which were with some faculty or you worked on projects together. So that always made me believe that most of the learning, for me at least, came from two different things where you were doing sort of your own intensive study. There was a certain part of learning where there is, some of it is like skating, right? Or um, you know, doing certain things where you have, there is certain aspect, which is repetition as a mother of skill. You literally are laying down infrastructure in your brain. When you start to learn certain things, it's literally, to me, the brain is a muscle in some, some aspects you build muscle memory, brain memory by doing. So there's a part of it, which was skills based. And then the other part of it was, um, learning new things by doing, be it building an email system, be it learning how to landscape right, be, how to paint a home. Um, but I always thought that, th that in some ways you need to do both. You need to have one part of education, which is really skills building, like actually almost like weightlifting, right? You just have to power your brain. What do you guys think about that? I mean, th that's, that's what was, uh, there are certain skills, like when you first study certain things like algebra, none of it makes sense, or even negative numbers. A lot of young people, fall out of math right when negative numbers come because they don't really explain what a negative number is. It's just, it's like you said, with your son learning spelling, the explanation is not there, but there, and I, I'm not sure if many of these teachers even understand a lot of the principles behind a lot of the stuff that they're teaching, because I don't think they've been, I mean, if you really go down to this, this, the things and you really question it, you come down to truth of certain things, you know, to the essence of, 
Like in the case of a negative number, you're taught one, two, three, four, five, six, and suddenly someone starts teaching you negative one. When the negative numbers really should not be taught until people are taught like vectors, because it's really directionality, right? It's a direction of something. Um, so I find, I think some of the way, I think the problem also is in these public school systems, uh, there are very few teachers who actually have taken time to understand the concepts, the deeper concepts. So probably that's why they won't, don't want to explain to your kid why these words are spelled differently because the concepts aren't taught. Richard, how do you find when your daughter comes home and asks you questions? Does she ask you stuff, questions on homework or anything like that, or Gabriella? Well, she has her online teachers. She, she asks her questions too, but she can always ask us, but she has like online teachers. So how, so in the online teaching mode, how is that different than sending them to a school? What's the big difference there? She gets more classes that more of her interest. Oh, so it's more variety. You get more choice. Yeah, and she's not being forced with like different values that are being taught in public school and stuff like that. I see. So, she, so I think what you're saying, she gets to choose what classes, and then you're, there's not the political thing of this is how things are, whether you're taught sex education or drugs. And that's another thing I had forgotten too. In first grade, it was an election year. Um, the teacher had a um, poll done on like who the kids should vote for. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that was like, of course, first grade, they're going to be repeating what their parents, you know, were going to vote for. So it was kind of weird. And, you know, and some issues became of that. Like, why would you vote for that person? It, like, what does a six year old know about voting? They're just repeating what their parents are saying. Mm -hmm. Gabriella, what about you? In, 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 you know, in the environment of how you teach your kids, is it through online classes or do you teach? Yeah. I've done, a few different, I've done a few different methods. The first, the first year or two, we were in a class together where the parents taught a small group of kids and we did science and history. Uh, and they had a reading group, so they had a discussion about books. And it was multiple grades. So those are the subjects that you can do easily with multiple grades. Um, I've also done a classical curriculum and that one was we met together one day a week and talked about the stuff that we had learned the week before that they learned on their own so they were able to use the Socratic method and just okay. pull out discussion and thought because they were discussing topics and debating things um, the last couple years, they have done math mostly online. I don't know why they don't like learning from me for math, but they don't. Um, so they'll watch a video and do some work. And if they have more questions, I can answer them. Um, most of the other things have either been from books or just assignments that we come up with with their interests. So what? So. Um, I think um, I want to take some questions, but what would be your ideal method of homeschooling if you could have it your way? Richard, like if you could have it your way, like right now, I think there's a lot of limitations on some of the tools, right? If you could have it your own way, what is like ultimate homeschooling look like, Richard? Um, 
I know some people do this, but like just a group of like-minded people and just have like an open school for them or something. So, so that's kind of hard to find in my area. When you say an open school, you're saying a bunch of homeschoolers get together and then start their own school. Is that yeah, yes, we've there's kind of groups like that in my area, but ideologically that we don't match up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Gabrielle, what about you? What would be the ideal homeschooling model? It is totally different for everyone. There's, uh, there's something called unschooling where you just are interest-based and you dive into learning about things and you incorporate math and science and writing in those topics all the way up to a formal, almost a virtual school, which is done at home and the parents basically their mo the most um, their responsibility is to choose which virtual school to go to. Mm -hmm. um, so there's a vast array. And for me, I have just, I have picked per subject and per kid of what works best for them and their personality and me and my teaching style. There is a lot, there are a lot of options and there's, there's no limit to what you can do. So what you're saying is there is no one method. There's infinite number of ways that, that you could, you could do this. That's right. So, so I, th I think what happens is the people like this woman at Harvard who wanted to shut this down. This is, I think, part of this larger model of people um, wanting to corral people into certain frameworks. And those frameworks are based, I, I always hear the word safety. Like this woman was saying it was dangerous for parents um, to be bringing up their kids or dangerous for kids to be homeschooled and the problems with it. So the danger was always issue. Same with, for example, when you get into the whole area, whether you vaccinate or not, right? It's always about safety, whether you should, um, any issue I've noticed that the one set of the liberal elite always use the word safety. So whether it's, um, you know, small businesses, right? They say, well, you know, in order to be safe for your books and your auditing, you need to pay more auditing fees. And meanwhile, the big guys don't have to pay as much. So I've always noticed that safety is always put there, whether it's homeschooling, whether it's medical treatments, um, you can look at a whole array of things. And that safety argument always ends up with creating monopolies, you know, uh, for others. So for example, I think what's, what's occurring here with this woman is she's basically saying, you guys are unsafe. Therefore we need to come in and make it safe which means people need to go to accredited schools, which are managed and done by a certain set of people. And this phenomenon, of, and it basically leads to regulation, right? You regulate an industry and then you force people to fall in line. And then you create these little universes of regulatory frameworks. Happens in medicine. A lot of my friends who are doctors, they're looking back at their whole medical education and they're really wondering what they actually learned. Um, and I think it comes down to why is any why is there any of these why why should even education be accredited like why shouldn't you be able to i think the issue is should we not remove all accreditation what is a degree right why does harvard why is there even this accreditation process do you think that has any value even to accredit like because these are accredited degrees right you know there's a whole process called accreditation 
Right. Yeah. I, I, I don't think accreditation is very useful. Um, that depending on the accreditation agency, I think they typically look for what you're learning. There, there may be, there may be some too much. There's definitely too much control there, and for people to say you have to go to an accredited school or have a, an accredited a curriculum, then who gets to choose what's in there? Yeah, and someone I, just someone just wrote it's all about money, not the kids. I think it's worse than that. I yeah. think honestly, the the danger is that. We teach our children to think critically and that the, the, as they grow up, they question the narrative. They question the indoctrination that is happening at the universities and even in the public school system. So that's the danger to them, but they won't say it that way. They're saying, oh, it's dangerous mm -hmm. because they make up something. But that's, that's what they really think. The people that challenge their beliefs are the homeschooled children because they're the ones that can think through things and see what's going on. And they know the constitution. So they don't teach that in school either. Right. So what you're saying is the, the bigger, when they say danger, what they're talking about is there could be a whole generation of kids who are being educated to think on their own, be rebellious, be revolutionaries, um, think in, in, in the non um, sort of cookie cutter model. And that's yes. what's really dangerous. Yes. Yeah. I think that's really the essence of it. I think it's that. Well, and the fact is that model affects them economically too. It's both, right? They're related. If you have people who are thinking differently, that also has effects on their economic model. Well, I think I call this thing the genius of homeschooling. And um, there's a, you know, I wrote a book several years ago. It's called The Seven Secrets of Innovation. And the goal was really to, it's a seven part program that I put together. Um, and the goal is to really teach people how um, you can basically uh, recognize that innovation is in everyone's DNA. And the purpose of life is to unleash that innovation in people. And so everyone, and in whatever form they want, whether it's art, math, physics, whatever it is. And when I did that, it came out of my journey when, you know, after the invention of email, when my stuff went into the Smithsonian and the, and the, uh, the horror that it caused certain people because of the fact that email wasn't invented at MIT, it was invented before MIT. That's what it was really about. Mm -hmm. And I think it comes down to what you just said, because if things, successes do not come from their bastions of power, from their educational environments, then that too is a threat to them. And the invention of email took place before I came to MIT, right? Which, right, it took place out of that uh, hallowed halls of innovation. So when I put that book together, it was basically to teach people that when you're young, if in some ways, if I were to start my another company, I'd probably hire 14 year old kids. Because the thing is, when you're young, you don't have any limitations. You don't, you, you frankly have very, you, you don't know what you don't know, which is a good thing in some ways. So you're willing to explore your boundaries. You know, when I was 14 people, the adults that said email could never be invented. It was impossible. But to the secretaries I was working with, they didn't think it was impossible. I didn't think it was impossible and we created it. But I think there's this whole aspect of unleashing innovation. And when I um, put that book together, it was basically essentially teaching people 
those seven, you know, uh, aspects of innovation. But um, uh, we'll do a follow-up on that. I don't want to take time today, but one of the Mm -hmm. critical things on that was innovation is in our DNA. The second thing uh, that I had in that book, um, one of the other of the seven was mentors. How important it was to get mentors, people around your life. They could be any type of mentor who would really support you in doing, you know, doing a project right together. The third thing among the other seven things I talk about is the importance of customers serving others that you meaning that if you're building something, um, you can build something. But if the real interaction comes out, you know, if I make this pen um, and then I have to serve it to someone and they have to use it, there's a whole nother educational process that takes place there because you have to learn customer service, which is talking, convincing, selling, marketing, right? Understanding what, what their needs are. So you continually innovate um, the concept that you can come up with an idea that you think is good, but only when the rubber meets the road is how customers feel about it. But like this, I put together a whole bunch of things like this um, to teach people, particularly young people in the age of 14 through 18, that they could essentially innovate things as email. You know, 14 year old boy created the first TV, uh, Philo Farnsworth, very similar environment. He did it because he had a loving mentor, a loving family, and he had people gave him some infrastructure. So I'm a big proponent that the genius of homeschooling when it's integrated with actual practical building of projects, there's a whole nother aspect of innovation that could be unleashed. Um, that doesn't involve going to a, uh, an MIT or Silicon Valley, et cetera, that, that the world is missing out significantly on young people actually solving problems that we don't, that we haven't even either thought about or people have thought were impossible to solve. Um, there's a, uh, I don't know if you saw that book, the man who knew infinity. Um, it's a very interesting movie. Those of you online have seen it, but it's a, it's a book about a guy called Ramanujam. He came from the village next to our village. Here's a guy who at the age of 12 was given a book on theoretical math by somebody, which people aren't supposed to study until they're in a PhD postdoc. So as an 11, 12 year old, he just thought this is a normal book. This is math. So he st- that's why I'm saying when you don't know a lot, you actually don't know what the impossibilities are. Right. Anyway, by the time I think he was 16 or 17, ended up going to Cambridge. He died very young as a 25-year-old, but he was one of the greatest mathematicians. And there's a movie called The Boy You Knew Infinity. But I think that the entire this liberal elite model puts boundaries on people also. So we don't even know what the full capabilities of the human brain could be expressed because you've already said you can't do this and you can't do that and you can't do this. In 1977, people said you could not create email. They said it was impossible to convert the old-fashioned interoffice mail system to the electronic version. But I didn't know about that. And I think many uh, Philo Farnsworth didn't know that you could ever not create a TV. He saw the way he lived on a farm, the way the cows did this pattern. And that gave him the idea you can build a raster tube, right? And you could do this pattern of sending to create an image. So I think we're missing out on the as- aspect of innovation um, big time. And there's probably so many problems that could be solved by young people. Because I think in that realm, before you go into university, people don't know what they don't know. And I know as an entrepreneur, every business I started when I looked in retrospect, my first company, if, if I knew what I knew, knew what it would take to do it, I would never have done it. 
-hmm. So it's almost like it's good not to know certain things, that it's good to head boldly into the unknown and figure things out. And I think a lot of this educational models tells people what they can't do. I mean, we were talking about this, Richard and Gabrielle M, on this vaccination issue, for example. You've had the same old, you know, liberal elite containing that movement. Oh, you must go fight. This is their way to solve. This is their level of innovation. You must go beg to the legislators to try to give us back medical exemptions, right? And um, you must beg to some people like the Kennedys, or you must beg to X, Y, Z. When I looked at the problem, it came, I mean, I didn't know a lot about it. And you, you can see the solution we provided, which was, A, we must repeal the 1962 Kennedy Vaccination Act. That was seen as, what are you talking about? Which is the thing that started it. That's an innovation. We just published a paper, again, looking at it completely from a fresh slate. Hey, forced vaccination is rape. Totally new. People had talked about vaccination being rape sort of in this, you know, emotional way. But we, you know, I honed it down to a very scientific definition. And then the concept that we have to boost immunity. Those three concepts are innovations when you put them together. But the same old guard, you know, who's been in this quote unquote anti-vax movement was against that innovation. In many ways, many of them are liberal elites who always bound a problem. So that's what I think the genius of homeschooling offers. And to your point, Gabrielle and Richard, is that the state wants to contain the, the degrees of freedom that someone's brain can move in, right? What is impossible, what is not possible. And I think that's the real crime with this whole, what this woman's trying to do. Yeah. Um, uh, someone wrote, eliminate teachers unions. Let me just read you, and I want your guys' thoughts on it, and then we can close it up. Let me see. Uh, and then uh, uh, someone said, eliminate teachers unions. People are agreeing we should eliminate accreditation. Uh, let's see. Um, what else here? We have many ways of socializing people. There's endless possibilities. Anyway, what do you guys think about these teachers unions? Um, um, what do you guys think about them? Uh, um, in my city, they are really messing up everything. How are they messing things up, Gabriella? How are the teachers union? I, I am still trying to work to figure it out. It's I've narrowed it down to the teachers union and the um, whatever that board, the school board of the city, because we've had very good principals. We have very good superintendents and nothing ever changes as far as I have some foster kids in public high school and I've had I've been dealing with the public high school with for my foster kids who tend to need special services and everything else. I've been dealing with them for many, many years now and nothing ever changes. Um, when the, the money got lower for special ed, one at one point the budget got cut and services got cut even more than they were. So they're denying what these kids mm -hmm. need and and then I have students going in there learning math from a general ed classroom teacher trying to teach high school math so this kid can pass the MCAS, which the bar is pretty low. Um, and then the teacher doesn't know an answers to his questions about mm -hmm. basic high school math. So that's just some of the things. And then our budget is totally out of control. 
and being spent on administration, not on teachers and useful things for the students. Richard, what about you? What do you think about the teachers unions? Um, I don't know. I, on that city webpage, when B was in um, kindergarten, we looked it up. Her kindergarten teacher was making over a hundred grand a year. In the, I don't know. I, I know different areas that um, pay scale are different, but when when a kindergarten teacher is making a hundred grand a year, this is in Canada. Yeah, so, uh, yep, because all public employees are listed. And somebody just commented on uh, the chat there. I saw they protect um, pedophiles. I totally agree with that. They what? Somebody wrote teachers unions protect pedophiles. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Well, MIT and Harvard protected Jeffrey Epstein, Epstein. right? Mm -hmm. So if you can think about it, if the, the universities like MIT and Harvard, after Epstein said that he was, uh, after he was convicted, they still continue taking money from him. Um, you know, our campaign for U.S. Senate, a couple of closing words, I think you guys know that it's founded on this concept of truth, freedom and health. But one of the core aspects of it, I think, is to uh, on the truth side is to look at academia academia you know university academia has become pay to play after the 19 a lot of this uh destruction in my view if you look at the timeline it was around 1970. 1970 is when you had all sorts of consolidation of power in the pharmaceutical industry the big pharma guys the gpos and the pbms got together and they destroyed healthcare. and, and the department of education came into being in 1970. uh i when i was in school uh gabrielle you mentioned this in in the in the, in the 70s we had very cool teachers. It was, I think, the last renaissance of public school. It was just ending, where our teachers actually, you had class, you had a certain curriculum, but the teachers would say, oh, that student is a little bit slower in this area. I'm going to change the curriculum for them. And that student is a little bit faster. I'm going to give him a lot more stuff to do. Mm -hmm. And so the teachers, many ways, were given power. Um, and I think what's happened with these teachers unions, or for example, doctors, is that the state has created these boards and they've created incentives for even the doctors or the teachers to fall in line and the good teachers they get kicked out of the system who actually want to do things a little more innovative my sixth grade teacher for example he had this he was a world war ii veteran he was literally out on the boat uh in the navy he was a navy seaman when the bomb on hiroshima was dropped you know so his class he would teach us all sorts of complex math he taught us how to run a store, okay? We literally started a store and we learned accounting, pricing, retail, everything. We literally sold to the other classes. It was quite, in retrospect, it was very interesting. He would go on travel all over Europe and then he would give his history lesson from where he traveled. Um, and uh, he was a guy who smoked pipes. So he'd bring all of his pipes in. I mean, not marijuana pipes. And each one had a story. A historical story so it was a time when teachers were able to do had more flexibility in how they taught their courses so in some ways the teachers would figure out they look at the classroom i'm not saying they were parents but they did have a certain flexibility on how they would redo their classes in interesting ways i remember that throughout you know second grade third grade fourth grade fifth grade when i came to the united states i came here you know for second grade and I think something drastically changed in the 80s following the Department of Education's creation. It become, as you said, this common core. But there was a period in the 70s where teachers like you guys were actually able to do uh, very, very interesting things, very different things.
Um, Michael Faraday, if anyone knows, um, someone said, here's the thing, school is not what it was. Teachers have to teach for the tests. They can't innovate, take time and use discretion. There is no time or freedom for teachers to use their gifts. The problem is not teachers, it's standardized testing. I tend to agree with this. You know, I think what's happened is that, there, and same, same is true in medicine. Jen, if you can just take that away, that's from Amy. So I think what's happened even in medicine, I have a lot of friends who are doctors. One of them, gastroenterologist, he chose not to vaccinate his kids. All of his other doctors thought he was crazy, but he said, look, I did the analysis and my daughter was immunocompromised. She, she was born cesarean, it didn't make sense. Um, I think what's happened is that the teachers unions, I think we're talking about teachers unions, not the teachers, okay? So teachers nowadays get fired for stepping outside of the government. Exactly. Right. Same thing happens to doctors. So if a doctor says, I want to do this, they get thrown out. So I think what's happened is it's almost state control consolidation. The teachers, doctors, uh, everyone is regulated. You know who isn't regulated? Lawyers. Everyone think about this. Lawyers are self-regulating. They can do all sorts of garbage and get away with it. And they all protect each other. I'm convinced the goal of our public is to dumb down our kids. Well, that's definitely- um, Get them to listen and obey, absolutely. Right, and that isn't working that well either. <laughs> yeah, Cambridge got rid of all their AP classes. There's no AP classes in Cambridge. Yeah, I mean, I remember for me, I mean, it's not that long ago, there was a lot of competition. And I think, frankly, I think competition isn't a bad thing, but you had skills and you could, you could say that person had these skills and this person didn't. And I think we've gotten to a point, someone said, I resigned from high school math teaching after 10 years, John Shepard, because I literally had to be quote unquote on the same page as every other math teacher in the hall. No room for creativity. Well, that's really sad, John. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, if I look back at an eighth grade teacher, Mr. Summer, amazing teacher, he had the standard curriculum, algebra two, and then he let you go as fast as you want. I finished up, you know, calculus by the ninth grade because of him. And he allowed me to do that. My mother is a retired inner city high school English teacher. She chose to retire early 1994 because she wasn't allowed to even put her hand on a kid's shoulder. Yeah. Well, when I went to sixth grade, Mr. Roth, who was a guy who went to the Navy in the schoolyard, he'd take two people were screwing around. He would take two kids' heads and bash them together. Okay. I'm not saying everyone should do that, but there was total discipline and learning in his classroom. He didn't, you know, screw around with any nonsense. So I'm not sure what's going on in schools anymore, but what I can tell you is when I see every idiot wearing masks and it was dystopian, right, Richard, for me to walk out. Someone said, you're remarkable, Dr. Shiva, I'll vote for you no matter rep or Democrat. Thank you. Look, this is beyond left or right. It's not beyond, it's what we, Richard and I were walking around because I've been here doing all my videos, Gabrielle, and I couldn't believe the number of idiots just wearing masks and furthermore running with them in a hot weather and biking. And that's when I realized, to your point, that we must have created a world now of edu vulnerable, educated idiots. Right. Um, Dick Lindzen, who is the one who's a professor at MIT, who's the one who uh, similar to me, when I was exposing the Paris Accords, he had written a letter to President Trump saying, you should get out of the Paris Accords. And I asked him, Dick, I said, what's going on? He goes, Shiva, do you understand that we've created a bunch of educated, vulnerable elites? When I used to teach at MIT, and everyone should listen to this, 
I used to teach, didn't want to get paid. I taught the most popular elective course called systems visualization, which took four different aspects of science, systems thinking, data science, uh, narrative storytelling, and uh, branding theory. And, and students would do these amazing projects. They take a complex system, they'd have to draw it out. So they had to bring in some artistic skills. Anyway, uh, when I was teaching that, uh, we, it was, it was the most popular elective. Well, there were some students who would never submit. they never show up to class, never submit any homework assignment and would come in the last day and submit some garbage. And I used, I used to give them a D, you know, who got upset with me, not the students, the administration. Why are you giving this kid a D because they wanted everyone to get an A or a B. And the students had the right, which is fine to critique the teachers, but it had become a self fulfilling model that the teachers would never go out of the way to really grade hard anymore because they were afraid of their popularity. So you've created these environments in many of these colleges, there's great inflation. Everyone gets an A or a B. You don't really know the difference, but they have the, the brand of that organization and you as an employer hire these people and you don't even know what the hell you're getting anymore. When I ran my second company, Echo Mail, I started it on my own, Gabrielle and Richard, with nothing, literally with nothing. I barter trade and we, I had built it up to a $6 million company by myself. No business experience, just selling, hardworking. A bunch of my board members said, hey, you should hire, you need to hire some professional managers. You need people out of Harvard Business School. Those guys will help you to grow your company. So I said, really? And one of my, he said, yeah, he goes, you've never run a business. You've never scaled. I go, wow, you're, maybe you're right. And I was only 29, had done 40 million in sales myself, built my own company from scratch. This technology called Echo Mail. So anyway, so I hired these two guys. I remember this one guy was a Harvard MBA, you know, following the model. Mm -hmm. And another guy was his friend who was a Harvard MBA and he brought them both in. And one guy would show up at 10 a.m. and live at 4 p.m. I, I made him president of my company. The other guy was VP of sales. And I got to understand, I had been cold calling, selling myself, built this company up from scratch, thinking these guys are going to do some magic. So one day I'm sitting next to this VP of sales, who was my VP. And I said, okay, because he wanted to, you know, I said, Doug, let's do some calls to customers. He goes, okay. So I said, okay, pick up the phone and call. And he goes, what do you mean? I said, yeah, pick up the phone. Let's make some calls. He had never done this. And so Literally, I will never forget this day. He's picking up the phone, talking to and sweating, sweating with fear. And here's a guy I was paying three times more than me. We're still a startup. Okay. And I'm thinking, and I'm saying, I got off the phone. I said, Doug, have you ever sold? He goes, well, 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 not really. I've, I've studied it and I've taught people, you know, I've managed people. I said, you're telling me, have you ever closed a sale? He goes, no. I said, you're telling me you've never closed a sale in your life and you're a VP of sale. That was his resume from Harvard. The other guy who was running my company would come with these nice spreadsheets, run a meeting, no inspiration, nothing. My co-founder in the company, Bruce, was looking at all this, me so frustrated. One day I come in and I said, Bruce, where are those guys? He goes, I fired them, okay? Because I told them to get the F out of here, okay? So the reason I'm sharing that is that knowledge set that they learn is for running a billion dollar company where everything is beautifully done for them. These guys could not think on their feet. They couldn't close one sale, yet they had these beautiful Harvard Business School degrees. 
And what I've learned is that the education I learned mowing lawns, the education I learned landscaping, the education I learned uh, doing door-to-door -door sales as a 12-year-old selling burpee seeds because I wanted to used to have, sell these seeds and then you could get a, my parents had no money, then you'd win different points to get a, that's where I got my education and for my father. So I'm not really sure what the hell these kids are actually learning. I do know some very wealthy people in the neighborhood I live. They hire $30,000 consultants to take these very dumb, wealthy kids, give them a lot of consulting, and they get into the biggest schools now. So there's a, a guy who wrote a report. It said there's a lot of smart, dumb kids at big universities and a lot of poor, smart kids, you know, who don't get the same resources those kids do. So I think that's really what's going on. So I think the genius of homeschooling is that I think there's a big opportunity here and um, we should do a couple more sessions on this. And if anyone here has any ideas on this, we should do it. But um, maybe what I'll do next time, Gabriella and, um, and uh, Richard, is we could go through those seven things I did on the seven things of innovation. And by the way, everyone should know out there, I have a small foundation called Innovation Core. I, I try to find about eight kids a year I've been delayed this past two years. We do it every two years to, and I give a thousand bucks um, and you can go to the website. We'll be updating it on innovationcore.org. Um, uh, it's, it's up on the website. If you go to the international, I'll show it to you where it is. We'll update the site and I'll send it out. But um, I tried to identify kids who I can mentor. We give them money and the goal is the kids have to have done some project already that they've shown that they can innovate. And innovation is not sitting in a lab. They did something, they created something, and they sold it and tried to do a business. They don't need to be successful, but the point that they try to make something could be a service or a product, and they try to get customers for it. Even if they have one customer, they're eligible to apply. And if they do, we give them a thousand bucks. I give them you know, four mentoring sessions, and then we recognize them you know, to what they do. But innovation is taking your skills, solving a problem, and then trying to share that solution with others. So anyway, I hope this is valuable to everyone. Uh, Richard, I don't know if you see any more comments we should address. Gabriella and Richard, do you have any other comments you guys want to share? Let me just read what Eve wrote. Pamela A. Everett Goodman, that's because it's been beaten into their heads. I remember being in school and our teacher never told us who they voted for. When my son was in third grade, he... He asked me to vote for Obama because he was not old enough to vote. So this told me that they're literally telling our children who their parents should be voting for. Wow. <laughs> yeah, so I think what's happened is the entire educational model has become very sort of put into these little boxes. And by the way, that leads to racism, the real racism I talked about. If you don't, if you're a Democrat, if you're black, you must vote for a Democrat. If you're immigrant, you must vote for a Democrat. If you're, uh, and by the way, the Republican elite also follow this in a different way, okay? So they, I think the whole thing of putting people into boxes is what it's about. Richard and um, Gabriella, do you guys want to share any closing thoughts? Anything we didn't cover? I know this is the first time we've done this. Richard? Yeah, just, just that, um, you know, homeschooling is not a new thing. It's been around since the dawn of man. What is new is the public education system. Nobody should be afraid of it. What do you mean by that, Richard? People have been teaching the kids from home for like since we became the dawn of man. It's 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 not a new thing. Yeah. Yeah.
Let me just share with you. I'll come right back to you, Gabrielle. Let me just share this with you. This site is being updated. If you want to come Monday, we're, we're relaunching this called Innovation Core Be The Light, and people can apply here. This is going to be updated. We're, we're going to do it for the 2019-2020 year, so keep an eye on this. Um, the uh, We're relaunching this, but that program is, is for young kids, the age of 14 through 18, and it's for my own... Uh, personal funds that I like to support people. So, uh, and it's because of the journey I went through when I was a kid uh, creating that first email system. So I recognize there's a lot of smart kids out there. And if I can do something, I mean, it's, it's not a lot of money, but it can inspire people in some way. So everyone should keep an eye on that. Um, on Jen, if we should just make a note on it, we should probably do a whole thing, maybe a couple of nights from now, just on Innovation Core and the program that we have to help young people. So Gabrielle, if your kids are 14 through 18, B, your, your daughter may be eligible for it. Um, and then anyone out there listening, uh, we'll be posting it up again, keep an eye for it. But it's really to encourage kids to innovate. Innovate is not doing a lab experiment. There are other awards that do that. This is, you make something, that's one part. You find, you try to market it, sell it to a customer. It could be one customer and then you learn something from it. Even if it was a complete failure, we don't care. We think the more failures you do, the more you learn. All right. Thanks, Richard. Thanks, Gabriella. Thanks, everyone on Instagram. But again, everyone, remember, if you have any, um, if, if people want to know more about Innovation Core, email me at vashiva at vashiva.com. It's a program we're going to be relaunching um, uh, next week before uh, July 4th. Willis Smith said, thanks for free thinking points. Good way to teach kids. Yeah, Jennifer Bennett has said, um, that whether I should hold sessions, a whole little school on a homeschooling on how to innovate, the seven principles of innovation. What do you guys think? I mean, I could do it as a online teaching course. And then there's a little pamphlet book I have that people could get. But um, I think there's a lot of smart people out there who could be really almost like have a whole team of young people innovating all different problems. What do you guys think about that? I could do Great that. Idea. Yeah. Yeah, I think that would be neat. Okay. Gabrielle, anything else you want to share? Because you, I, 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 Richard, I, what, what, you have the last word. Sure. I want to encourage anyone who's thinking about homeschooling. There is a lot of support for you. There are a lot of options that you can choose that will fit with you and your children. And it is very good for them. Even just a year will give them a lot of understanding of who they are and self-confidence but if you start you probably will want to continue that's great thanks gabriella thank you richard thank you thanks jen be well everyone thank you hold on one second guys i'll come back to you let me just end this broadcast